And if you're staying behind, we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And um, you remember last time we were in, um, in verse 20, which we looked at despise not prophesying. one of Paul's exhortations to this Thessalonian church. And um, we saw how basically preaching... Armand, can you put me a bit softer? Um, how preaching and teaching is essentially what God, or what the Bible means when it refers to this prophesying, this preaching and teaching of the Scripture. Now, I emphasize, emphasize this biblical preaching and teaching um, because a prophecy cannot be anything if it is, or let me say, a true prophecy cannot be anything if it's contrary to God's ultimate revelation. And so it is the responsibility of those who are Christians, those who are saved, to study God's Word, know His Word, and then communicate that Word to the world. And that is what it is, to prophesy according to what God um, wants us to. And um, the purpose of this prophecy, as we said, is to exhort, to edify, and to comfort the church. And that's what our desire should be whenever we communicate God's Word. It is to exhort, edify, and comfort the church. And so in verse 20, when he says, despise not prophesyings, Paul is essentially saying not to ignore or downplay the power of God's Word being taught and preached. That's what he's saying. Don't, don't downplay it, elevate it, magnify it, emphasize it. And faithfully devote yourself to God's word. Now, in today's lesson, we will be continuing with this list of exhortations. And by God's grace, we'll finish it. Verse um, 21 and 22. So let's read together in um, verse 21 and 22. It says, Prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Now, this proving of all things definitely applies to what we studied in the verse before, prophecy. You have to prove, you have to test this prophecy, whether it is of God. If it is found to be good, you need to hold fast to it. If it is found to be evil, not of God, you need to abstain from it. So not just do you need to discern and acknowledge and approve between these two, but you need to take action based upon whatever it is. If it's good, you hold fast. If it is evil, you abstain. So the action must follow from the ability to identify whether it is good or not. So we find this principle of testing or proving prophecy. Um, we find it elsewhere in Scripture. In, in 1 Peter 2 verse 10, we looked, or 2 Peter 2 verse 10, we looked at it um, last time, sorry, Second Peter, what did I say? I feel like I said something completely different. Second Peter, <laughs> chapter 1, verse 20. There we go, there we go. thank you. I, I said Peter, I said Peter right, and there was a 1 and a 2, and yeah, I don't know. Okay. okay, so Second Peter 1, verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation any private interpretation. So, proving is a, or to prove, the question needs to be asked, is this message that is being brought contextually and biblically consistent? 
Or is the preacher putting his own twist or spin on God's revelation? Right? So you have to look at, so is it of private interpretation? Is it being twisted in a way that feeds his desires? Now, this, this is one of the questions you need to ask. Has he privately interpreted it? And if a certain text is used out of its context, does that message remain consistent with doctrinal revelation? So if I go to a passage in the Old Testament that does not necessarily speak about um, contextually about the message that I am preaching, but the message that I'm preaching is consistent with doctrinal revelation, that's the question you need to ask. Is it consistent with God's revealed truth? Or has he privately, has he twisted the scripture to, to drive his own agenda? So asking these questions is part of proving or testing a prophecy. Now, um, whenever you prove or test something, you need a standard against which to, to test it. If you write an, uh, an exam and there's a, there's a memo according to which that exam needs to be marked, you expect there to be a right answer. So if you then go and measure it, if your lecturer goes and measures it against some other standard and marks your paper incorrectly because he's using a different standard, that, is, that would upset you. That would be incorrect of him. And so when we say there's a standard, when we prove or test something, we need to measure it against the memo. <laughs> we need to measure or test it against the truth. And so when you measure or when you, or when you prove or test something, you need to hold up against the truth. And when it comes to the truth of prophecy, Scripture is the standard. In Acts chapter 17, 11, Paul speaks about the Bereans, and he says, These were more noble than these in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. They searched the scriptures to see whether the prophecy that Paul was proclaiming, whether it was consistent with the revealed scripture. So the standard when it comes to this is um, God's word. But as you'll see in verse 21, it says prove all things. It doesn't say just prove prophecies. Now, all things includes prophecies because all things are all things. But prove all things. This means that every idea, every life decision, every commitment, every doctrine you hold to, all of these things need to be proven to see whether they are good. And if they're found to be good, you need to hold fast to them. So, in order for us to prove these things, we need an objective good against which we test it. The verse does not say, hold fast that which is good for you, according to your own private interpretation. That's not what the verse says. The verse also doesn't say, hold fast to that which makes you happy, because if it makes you happy, it's good. <laughs> the, verse says, the verse says, hold fast to that which is good. And it says, abstain from evil. There is good. There is evil. Objectively. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be able to state these things so briefly and leave it there. He assumes that everyone works off of a knowledge of there is a good and there is an evil objectively. 
Does that mean that there aren't gray areas in life? No, of course, there are gray areas in life. But you can't have a gray area if there's not a black and a white for something to be in between it. So the gray area does not take away from the black and the white. It means that because there is a black, because there is a white, there has to be also a gray. And so you need to treat the gray areas as gray. You need to treat them as gray and with lots of grace. But you make the black and white issues black and white issues. If the Bible is clear about something, then you stick to what the Bible says. Now back to this idea of objective good. As I'm sure you would have guessed, the standard of good is God. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 to 17, we read about a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and said, Good master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Why do you call me good? For there is none good but God. All right? God is good. If something is in alignment with God, it is good. This is interesting. I was thinking about the, the idea of words and good. And how do you measure whether something spoken is good? And the idea of Scripture came up, uh, the, the creation came up to me the whole time. God said, it came, and then he said, and it was good. So something that flows out of God's word into reality is good. And so God's speaking is good. So good means to be in alignment with God's word. When God created the world in its sinless state, he said it is good. It is good because it was in alignment with what he wanted it to be. Paul said in Romans 7 verse 12, wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy, just, and good. God's law and God's commandment is good. This is echoed by David in Psalm 119, verse 39. It says, Turn away my reproach, which I fear, for thy judgments are good. God's judgments are good. God's commandments are good. And what, is God, what are God's commandments? It's the things that he has spoken. It's the things that he said, this is the way I want you to live. These are the things I want you to hold to. Those are his judgment. Those are his commandments. Those things are good. In Romans 12, verse 2, a verse I'm sure you're familiar with, it says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What are we told to do in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 21? Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. It says verse Romans 12 too, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable will of God. And this will of God is good. And it is proven or it is discerned by those who desire to be and to think more like Christ. That is what he means when he says, have your minds renewed, the renewing of your mind, that this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. So you renew your minds to think more like Christ. And then those who judge 
by, who don't judge by the world, world standards, but who judge by God's standards. And that's what I think also we can say he means by be not be conformed to this world. Don't let your mind, don't let your thinking be conformed to this world, but rather let it be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's why I say those who want to know God's will need to have their minds renewed, need to have them conformed. And then once that happens, they can prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So therefore, it's imperative to know what God says about things if we are to prove or to test the message and the direction of the world against the standard of good. You need to know what God says so that when you see things happening, when you hear things being said around you, you need to be able to, how do I test whether what, this is, what is happening, what people are saying, what people are following, this new decision that's made, how do I know if it's good? How do, you need to prove it. You need to not just blindly follow, be conformed to the image of, or be conformed to this world, but you need to be conformed to what God says is good and right. So, does this mean that only Christians who study God's word have a moral sense um, of good and evil? Do only Christians, because of God, if God's word is the standard of good, do only Christians have an understanding of what is right and wrong? Um, definitely not. But we certainly have an advantage. We certainly have an advantage. Um, you can open to Psalm 119 and John chapter 3. Psalm 119 and John chapter 3. I... I want you to, to think of this idea of good and, and evil in, in the following way. Um, I almost want to say it has three parts to it. Understanding or discerning between good and evil has three sources. I want to say it's the conscience, the spirit, and the word. The conscience, the spirit, and the word. And those are the three things that help us to discern between good and evil. And the idea I want to, I want to say, give you guys today is what we read in, in um, Psalm 119, verse 105. It says, in verse 105, it says, The word, uh, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now, I want to liken conscience to this path. I want to con liken the lamp to the Spirit and the light to God's Word. We all have a path. We all have conscience. We all have this general revelation which God has given mankind. We are all on a path. Now, some people's paths are dark. Some people's paths have a lamp, and some people's paths have a light. And um, so when we are to discern between good and evil, our ability to discern or how good we can discern has to do with how much light there is on this path. Now, this conscience we read about in Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, I'll read it to you. It says, For when the Gentiles which have not the law... So they don't have God's word. Do by nature the things contained in the law. These having not a law are a law unto themselves. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience 
also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So the conscience accuses or excuses. So in other words, you, are fe- you feel guilty or not, or you, are, you, you, are, you know that what you did was good, was right, or it was wrong based on conscience, a general revelation. I have a path. I stepped off the path. It was difficult to stay on the path in the first place because I had no light. But you still have the path. So there's this conscience, this general revelation. Some consciences are exercised, as Paul refers to it in Acts 24. He says, I've exercised my, to always be, oh, I'm abusing that, um, to have my conscience void of offense to God. That he exercised his conscience in that way. So some people have an exercised conscience. Others have a seared conscience, a hard and insensitive one. And the more that conscience is seared, the darker that path becomes as they travel further from the light. I'll ask you to open in John chapter 3 as well. John chapter 3 and verse 19. John chapter 3 verse 19 says, And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So the conscience is convicting him that his deeds are evil and therefore he doesn't want to come to the light, God's word, God's revelation, because the closer he comes to the light, the more he sees the sin. And so the conscience is something that can push someone towards the light to get rid of that guilt. But it is also something that pushes some people away to sear, to say, I don't want to feel it anymore, and to move further away from the light. Now, the second thing I said is, is, um, that we have as a source of proving between good and evil is the Spirit of God. And that I said, I'd like to li- liken unto this lamp that we read about in Psalm 119, verse 105. So every believer has the Spirit indwelling their heart. We read about that in 1 Corinthians 3. Now, while you're in John, have a look at John chapter 14. The Spirit of God. What is the work of the Spirit? John chapter 14, verse 26. It says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. So this, the, the, the purpose of the Holy Ghost in this sense is to bring all things to our remembrance, to teach all things. Have a look at John chapter 16 and um, verse 13. John 16, 13. It says, Howbeit, when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He, um, he shall But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, for he will show you things to come. He will guide you, the Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. So as you're on this path, you have conscience, but the lamp, the Spirit, will illuminate, will guide, will bring to remembrance, will teach you all things. So the Spirit of God will guide the believer. 
This lamp illuminates your immediate next step. It makes the path um, slightly clearer as you place one step at a time. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the, of the flesh. So each step that you take, you take it in the guidance of the Spirit. So you already have more than just conscience. You have one step. Your, lamp, your foot is illuminated by this lamp. And so every step that you take, um, you can make a decision for good and evil based on the revelation that the Spirit gives you. But, as we saw earlier in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, the Spirit can be quenched. So this lamp can be dimmed. It can be put out. And so you never want to be in that situation because then you have only the conscience left to guide you. Now, we need something that illuminates our whole path. Something that opens our eyes to the big picture of life and, how, and God's way of looking at things. How He distinguishes between right and wrong. We need something that illuminates that path that guides us into that. And that light is God's Word. But I want to not differentiate or um, I don't want to separate it from the Spirit. Whenever you read through Scripture, the, how, the, how often God's Spirit and God's Word are connected is incredible. So, and we see that in, in 1 Corinthians 2, how spiritual things are spiritually discerned, speaking about the things that the Spirit of God gave man. And so how we can discern things spiritually, talking about God's Word, because of the Spirit. So it's not the Word of God in isolation, it's the Word of God interpreted and taught by the Spirit. And that is what gives that ultimate light to your path. Um, in Second Peter 1 verse 19, I got my Peter reference right this time. It says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well to take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. Until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. So, Second Peter 1.19 says, We have this word of prophecy, this more sure word of prophecy, that is like a light that shineth in a dark place. You're in this path of life, and God brings this light through His Spirit, through His Word, and it illuminates that path that you may walk confidently, that you may know what God says about right, about wrong, about good, about evil, and you can walk confidently, um, knowing that you are doing what God wants you to do. Now, in um, Psalm 119, I don't know if you're still there. Sorry, I should have probably told you to stay there. Psalm 119, Psalm 119 verse um, 11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Now, remember what we read Prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. Holding fast is similarly, I want to say, can be similarly stated as hiding it in your heart. Placing it in your heart. Keeping it there. Memorizing it. Living by it. It's hid in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against thee. What is sin? Ultimately, it's evil. It's against God's will. So, if you want to be able to live a life that is that has proved good and is holding fast to good, hide God's word in your heart that you might not sin against him. Have a look at Psalm 119 verse uh, 104. 
Psalm 119, verse 104. It says, Through thy precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. So it's through the precepts of God that I learn to hate every false way. How do you identify the false way? Because of the precepts of God. And because of his precepts, therefore you hate that false way. And so that only takes place once God's word steps into the picture. Once God's word becomes the standard by which you prove, by which you test. Another verse that I'm sure you're familiar with, we looked at it recently as well, is 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Once again, God's word and good works. God's word, uh, discernment of evil, the false way. God's word is the one that makes you perfect, complete. In other words, truly furnished unto all good works. So, without God's word, (laughs) to live a life that discerns between good and evil and holds fast to that which is good is impossible. You need God's spirit guiding you through the word of God. We need to consistently discern between this, this good and evil, to remain on this path. And we need to have an exercised conscience and a life filled by God's Spirit-filled Word. And this should be every Christian's desire. And every Christian has access to that to a large extent. You have God's Word. You, have, you should have faithful teaching. And um, through that, you need to be able to discern or to prove this good um, will of God. Now, something that we need to say at this point is that if Christians do not have an illuminated path, how will they lead others to the light? We need to contend for the faith. We need to preach the word in season or out, and we need to hold fast to that which is good. Because if we don't do it, who's going to? And unfortunately, I think we see what we see in the world is because those who have light do not lead others to the light. And so we've left the world to a conscience at best and that conscience seared to make moral decisions, to discern between good and evil. Now, how will they hear without a preacher. That's verse 14 of Romans 10. Romans 15, uh, Romans 10, verse 15. They need a preacher who brings glad tidings of what? Good things. Good things. That is what the Christian needs to take out to the world. That doesn't mean you have to become a preacher. It doesn't mean you, you have to stand on the street corner It means you are a witness. You are an ambassador. You take this glad tidings of good things wherever you go. And that is what makes the difference. That's what illuminates. And that illumination brings people on this path where they are able to discern more accurately. Now at this point, I want to remind you about something I I mentioned um, 
And the last lesson, I believe, is how we need to look at this list of exhortations in 1 Thessalonians 5 more holistically. Um, we, we often try and, and I understand why, but we often try and, I want to say, elevate one point or emphasize one point and then try and apply that one point. But as I said last time is, when you take this list of exhortations, verse 16 to 22, holistically, the one actually complements the other. And so the one following or the one preceding is made easier by the next one or the one before. And so it becomes, you take this whole piece and you apply that, and that makes it actually easier to apply than to just try and isolate the one and neglect the others. Now think about this idea when we look at verse 21 and 22. We have, a, we have a statement in verse 21 that says, hold fast to that which is good. And then you have in verse 22, abstain from evil. So you have hold fast and abstain from evil. It's difficult to hold fast if you're not abstaining from evil. <laughs> so you have to take those two together. Now we often separate these things because we have verse divisions. <laughs> but other than that, there should be no separation. Um, I think in, in Romans 12, some, I th- probably around verse 10 or so, it says, um, abhor the appearance of you or abhor evil, but cleave to that which is good. In one verse. So <laughs> lest you think I am, I am you know, mixing or putting something together that shouldn't be together, you have an example there of that. But what I find interesting about this word abstain, in the Greek, it means to um, hold oneself off. To hold oneself off. Now, the reason I find it interesting is the verse before it says, hold fast. And this one says, hold oneself off. So it's speaking about the same action, but almost in reverse. And so the, you can't do the one without the other. Um, if you're holding onto something tightly, you cannot hold on to something else tightly. You are, in other words, you are holding yourself off of something by holding onto something else. If I were to, I can't do that, I'm quite tall, but if I were to jump up and catch that crossbar, I would be holding onto that crossbar and I would therefore be, hold, be holding off from the floor. Does that make sense? I am holding on, therefore I am held off of the floor. So you have to, by holding on, you are holding yourself off of something else. If your pursuit and desire is the good of God's word, and you hold fast to that, abstinence from evil becomes easier. By applying the one exhortation, hold fast to that which is good, the other becomes easier. It becomes more natural because you've devoted yourself to that which is good. So devote your time and energy to God, the ultimate good, and abstaining from evil will grow increasingly natural. Not it will disappear. It will grow more natural because your energy, your focus, your devotion is to holding fast to something else. Pastor Mike recently mentioned that sword that was held so tightly, that grip that couldn't let go. It was holding so fast to that sword, that hand couldn't hold 
a beer <laughs> at the same time. That whole that hand was busy. All right. So you need to hold fast to something so tightly that it keeps you away from things that are evil. Now, notice in um, verse 22, it says appearance. It says appearance. So the more you hold fast to the good, the less attractive, as we said, evil becomes. However, it does not stop evil from appearing or presenting itself in different forms. So now this appearance of evil can refer to various forms. Anything that looks evil, you need to abstain from that. But it also, evil appears. So you need to abstain from that appearance. So appearance will happen. So we were never promised a temptation-free life. In fact, in Hebrews 4 verse 15, it speaks about Jesus. How he was tempted in all things like as we are yet without sin. Sin or temptation appeared. It came to him. He was tempted. Evil will make its appearance. But Jesus was without sin. So the problem, I want to say, is not the temptation or the appearance of sin. It is the lack of abstinence. The lack of abstinence. Now, this is once again where verse 21 comes into play. Your power to abstain to whatever evil you are being tempted with lies in what you are holding fast to. Your power or your ability to abstain from whatever evil appears to you, whatever temptation comes, lies in your your holding or lies in what you're holding fast to. If you're holding fast to lies, <laughs> if this was made of polystyrene, I would not be holding long. <laughs> but because it's made of something sure, because it's made of something strong, and in our case, God's word, our ability to, to abstain is a lot stronger. You see, to give in to temptation after it appears implies that you have let go of the good. It implies that you have let go of whatever it is that God wants you to hold on to to pursue evil. You've let go of the one to pursue the other. This is, why God, this is why Paul exhorts them in verse 21 and 22 by saying, guys, prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. Hold fast to that which is good. So I want to encourage all of you to, to love your Bible, to hold fast to it, to study it, because this is your only weapon of spiritual warfare and it is the only source of light to our paths. Do not be overcome with evil but overcome evil with good. And God's word is the ultimate good by which evil will be overcome. So as you learn to prove all things, hold fast to that which is good and through that God will illuminate your path he will give you the strength to overcome whatever it, appearance of evil comes your way. And um, you just need to hold fast to that and know that he has already given you the victory through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this, this morning. I thank you so much for this, this wonderful message, Lord, that you've given us. Um, an exhortation to some extent, Lord, to hold fast to that which is good. Um, to live in accordance to what you deem 
good to be. Um, Lord, help us to have an, a conscience that is exercised and void of offense to God. Um, Lord, that our, our sole purpose will be to, to please you in everything that we do. Lord, that we will have a desire to know what you have to say about everything, Lord, that we may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the lamp and the light that it is to our path. Um, it's a privilege, Lord, to walk on this path of life with you as a guide. And Lord, I, I thank you so much for making that possible. Please help us to also be messengers of this light wherever we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.